Good afternoon and welcome to the Narrow Path radio broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg and we're live for an hour each weekday afternoon uh, taking your calls. If you have questions about the Bible or the Christian faith, I'd be glad to talk to you about those. You have to call in and we'll talk to you about it. Uh, The number to call is 844-484-5737. That's 844-484-5737. Thirty-seven. Once again, I'm broadcasting from the uh, Central Valley of California, where I'm uh, in the middle of a speaking itinerary that's got me in the Sacramento area uh, last night. And tonight, I'll be back in the Sacramento area again on uh, Monday night. But in between, I'm going to be further south, um, closer to Fresno. I'll be actually speaking in Oakhurst tomorrow morning. Uh, And you may be, if you happen to be in Oakhurst or near there, um, I'm going to be giving a talk, uh, it's going to be a couple hours long, on uh, the veracity of the New Testament. And that is whether the New Testament, and especially the Gospels, are trustworthy and uh, giving reasons why it's absolutely irresponsible for anyone to say they are not. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a long lecture because it's fairly complete. And that's going to be in the morning t- uh, tomorrow. Um, from, uh, well, I guess it's, yeah, 10, 10 a.m. Oh, yeah, it's going to be quite long. Uh, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Or, I'm sorry, 10.30 a.m. to 2 p.m. So that's, what, three and a half hours, but there's a break in the middle. Anyway, that's in Oakhurst at a church called Sierra Pines Church. Uh, then the next day in the afternoon from 4 to 7.30, so that's another long one, I'm going to be giving a presentation on the four views of Revelation. Now, that, of, of all the uh, talking I'm doing on this trip, that's the only one you need to uh, register to attend. And I, I heard from the pastor of that church today, that's North Point Church in uh, in Fresno. He said uh, he's got about 400 people have registered, and he expects maybe, he didn't know, maybe 100 more might. He said he wouldn't be surprised. So if you'd like to come to that in Fresno at the North Point Church, that's from, um, let's see here, it, it starts at 9 in the morning, and it goes to 11 in the morning. No, that, I'm sorry, that's their church service. They have 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock service. Okay, so I'm speaking from 4 o'clock to 7.30 p.m. And, uh, again, if you're interested in any of these, you can go to our website, thenarrowpath.com, look under announcements, and you'll see the time and place and contact information and so forth. Uh, on Monday, I'm going to be speaking in Auburn, again, up here in the Sacramento area where I am now. And then I'm going to be speaking down at Clovis again on the next day as I'm heading toward home. Anyway, that's uh, what I'm doing for the next few days. And if you live in any of these areas or are interested in joining us, just go to thenarrowpath.com and look under announcements. It'll give the dates and the times and places and so forth. All right, enough on that. Let's go to the phone lines and talk to Carrie from uh, Texas. Carrie, welcome to the Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Thanks, Steve. Uh, last time I talked, we were talking a little bit about Ephesians uh, 9, 10, and 11. I still have some questions. Ephesians in, in 1? Verse 9, uh, Ephesians 1, 9, and 10. Okay, okay, gotcha. In, in verse 9, uh, it talks about uh, the mystery. And is this the same mystery that is later described as Christ uh, dwelling within us, or is it a different mystery? Well, you know, that's an interesting thing, because 
Paul calls more than one thing a mystery. For example, he said that marriage, where a man and woman become one flesh, he said this is a great mystery, but it speaks of Christ and the church. And in Colossians chapter 1, he says, you know, the mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And, and in Ephesians, he might have a different mystery in mind in chapter 1, though it's hard to say because uh, he just refers in verse 9 to what he calls the mystery of his will. Uh, but I think since, uh, you know, chapter 3 of Ephesians also mentions the mystery and actually identifies it for us, it's probably the same mystery in chapter 1 as in chapter 3. In chapter 3, uh, he raises the subject of the mystery again, and he says in verse 4, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge of the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to the holy apostles and prophets. And here's, here's what the mystery is, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the, through the gospel. So uh, he said the mystery that he's talking about now is the mystery of the, what we would call the body of Christ, what Paul himself calls the body of Christ, that the Jew and the Gentile would be in one body. And the reason that's something new is that even though a Gentile could be saved in the Old Testament, uh, it was pretty rare for Gentiles to actually become proselytes, and, and they had to become Jews to do so. Uh, to become a, uh, a Jew, a Gentile could be circumcised and become what they call a convert or a, a proselyte to Judaism. But what he's saying now is, no, Gentiles can be part of this body without becoming Jews. They don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to become Jews in any sense. Jews and Gentiles become uh, categories of, of little consequence because there's no Jew or Gentile in Christ. And so the, the oneness of the body of Christ and the merging of two different peoples into one new people is what he is referring to as the mystery in chapter 3 of Ephesians. And so I suspect when he mentions the mystery in chapter 1, that's probably what he has in mind there, too. That's, that's not my phone. Uh, that's not mine. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, in, in Last time we talked, you said verse 10 uh, kind of made a dilemma for pre-millennialists. Could you expound on that? Oh, I, I don't know that I said it was a dilemma for pre-millennials. I said there's different different millennial views would understand its meaning differently. Um, it, Paul says that in the dispensation, now the word dispensation in the Greek means stewardship, in the stewardship of the fullness of times, that is, as God stewards the ages and the times and, and dispenses them, uh, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. Now, uh, post-millennialists would see this very probably as a reference to uh, someday everybody's going to be converted and brought together in Christ. Uh, evangelical universalists would say, well, this probably is going to be fulfilled uh, after some people have died and gone to hell, but they, but they, they, may, they may have a chance to be uh, converted um, in hell. And some, that's one of the ways that universalists argue their case. Um, that I don't know which I don't know which meaning there is, but but what Paul says is that uh, God wants to gather together all things in Christ. Now he might be using the term "all things" as a hyperbole rather than a literal statement, because sometimes that is the way the Bible speaks. All things can mean all kinds of things, like Jews and Gentiles. 
that you know Jews and Gentiles are very different things in the mind of many of Paul's readers. But, but like Jesus said, if I be lifted, I'll call all men, I'll, I'll draw all men to myself. Uh, well, not every individual man comes to Christ, but, but all kinds of men do, uh, Jews and Gentiles and so forth. And Paul might have something like that in mind when he says all things, but it's ambiguous. Uh, honestly, it's, very, uh, it, it's impossible to be dogmatic about that. All right, one more quick question, if you will. Uh, we talked one time about uh, Eve. Uh, uh, a preacher was saying Eve was adding to the scripture when she uh, was talking to the devil that she wasn't supposed to touch the fruit. And uh, you said you kind of sided with the preacher that was, was holding to that view. Uh, but the fact that she makes that statement before the fall, would that sway your uh Understanding any? No, no, it wouldn't. Uh, I mean, it looks to me like, uh, you know, it looks to me like it's it's recorded that she added a line that God had not said. Now, God might have said it, and the record of it earlier in chapter two was incomplete, uh, and and we have the more complete statement as she quoted it. But I think there's no reason to believe that. Chapter 2 doesn't give the whole command the way God actually gave it to Adam. We do know that Eve had not been created yet when that command was given, so she must have depended on Adam to communicate that command to her. Uh, and maybe he added the, the additional part that she quoted, uh, but or maybe she did. We don't, we don't know. We're not, it, I don't think we can make an issue of it. But uh, it, it's clear that God said something that is recorded in Chapter 2, and Eve, when she purports to be quoting it, uh, quotes it differently and adds to it. Now, you're saying, well, that happened before the fall, so that wouldn't, she wouldn't have done that because that would be a sin. I'm not sure that it's a sin. I think it was a mistake, though. I think she, in, in fact, uh, you know, Adam may well have said to her, listen, God told us not to eat of that fruit, so I'll tell you, don't even touch it, you know. And when she, you know, in her mind, God had said, don't touch it. I mean, she... She may have interpreted it wrong. Uh, misunderstanding something is not the same thing as sinning. I appreciate your call, though. All right. Our next caller is Mike from Whidbey Island, Washington. Mike, welcome to the Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Thanks, Steve, for yeah. Thanks for taking the call. Um, Jay Vernon McGee taught on Philippians chapter two, verse nine, ten, and eleven. It says, "Therefore, God also has highly exalted him." And given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, he said that those under the earth are in hell. Would you agree with that? Well, it it certainly is one way that uh, it could be understood. You know, a lot of questions people ask me, I have to say, listen, it can be understood that way, but not necessarily. Some things are not as clear-cut because they're not as important for us to know. But but uh, the, the the realm below the, the earth uh, was, in the minds of many, the realm of the, the demonic and the realm of the, you know, evil spirits and so forth, and uh, and therefore could be referring to that realm. But also, a human body, once it's buried, is also below the earth. And it could just be referring to those who have died already. 
you know, those every knee is going to bow, including people who've died. People in heaven are, people who are alive on earth, and people who, who've died. They're going to someday bow to Jesus as well. So it could only mean that. But, I mean, I wouldn't argue with J. Vernon and McGee about that because I don't know that we, I don't think that either of us have a, the ability to say the other one would be wrong on that. So as far as I'm concerned, both interpretations are, would fit the wording. You know, it's saying that basically there's only three places you can be, heaven, alive maybe on earth, and those that are under the earth are, that, are, that are basically dead in hell. Um, I, I believe I, David Hawking wrote a book on hell, and he claims that hell is in the center of the earth because that's where the heat is, right? Well, I've heard that theory since I was a child, but the Bible doesn't necessarily uh, require us to believe that hell is in the center of the earth. Uh, I mean, it could be. It is often described as the heart of the earth. I mean, Jesus said that he had spent three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. But uh, we don't know that he went to what we would call hell. Um, you know, the, he went to Hades. But the word Hades often simply means the grave or the place of the dead. It doesn't necessarily specifically refer to the flames of hell as we might think of them. So these are, I mean, so, there are ways that Christians have come to think and talk about these things which go beyond what the Bible actually uses the language uh, to mean. But, but that, doesn't mean, that doesn't mean it can't mean what they're saying. Um, you see, there's a great number of things that Christians say that are not clearly taught in the Bible, but they could be implied. I mean, there's lots of verses that are vague enough that you could see it that way or not. But these are not important things. In other words, these are not the kinds of things that if you get it wrong, something is at stake. Uh, the Bible is clear on everything that is important for us to know. It's less clear on a great number of things, which God could have been more clear about, but it wasn't that important for us to know it. It's, it's I mean, to, to know exactly what of the choices, which is the better choice. At least I, I have to assume that because there are lots of things in the Bible like that. But, um, you know, I, under the earth it can certainly refer to the, the realm of the devils and the demons, or it can refer to simply those who are under the surface of the earth because they've, they've died and they're, and they're or, buried there. I'm sorry. I, I was actually just in the process of hitting the button, and then I heard your voice come in. I didn't mean to hang up on you in mid-statement. My apologies. Uh, Earl from Roseville, California. Welcome to the Narrow Path. Yeah, hello, Steve. Yeah, the Scripture verse, verses in Genesis 32, 24, 28, where it describes Jacob getting into a wrestling match with a man, and it turns out to be God. Mm -hmm. Was there a reason why God made an appearance to Jacob, and Jacob ended up getting into a wrestling match with him, other than Jacob getting blessed? Uh, there are theories about that. Obviously, the story is told as a very strange anecdote, and the Bible doesn't explain its meanings. But the theory that I've heard, and I think probably makes sense, is that Jacob was... Uh, in, in process of getting to know God, uh, when he knew that his father Isaac believed in God, and, uh, and, and Jacob apparently believed in God too, but he didn't embrace him or worship him, and therefore he referred to God. He said, the God of my father Abraham and the fear of my father Isaac, but he didn't say, and my God. Uh, and as he was fleeing early in life from his brother Esau, who wanted to kill him, and Jacob had his first personal revelation of God uh, with the dream about Jacob's ladder. 
uh, Jacob said, well, God was in this place and I didn't know. It. He says, Lord, if you if you uh, keep me safe in the years I'm away from home and bring me back safely and so forth, then you will be my God. And uh, and, you know, I'll give you 10 percent of what I get. And and this rock will be your house, he said, that, which are kind of we, those would require some um, interpretation. But he said, you will, in that case, be my God. Now, we don't find until 20 years later when he actually is returning to uh, his homeland and it's uh, and God has kept him safe that he f- fulfills the promise and he builds an altar. He offers, uh, you know, probably 10 percent of his livestock and he refers to God as Yahweh or he talk, calls him El Elohe um, Yisrael, which means God, the God of Israel, which was Jacob's name, Israel. So God, tw- I mean, 20 years earlier, Jacob said, if you keep me safe and bring me back safely, uh, I'll, you'll be my God. And 20 years later, he does fulfill that promise. And he says, okay, God, you're my God. You're the God of Israel. That's the God of Jacob, me, he's saying. Okay, so that's what it was about. Now, in that 20 years, uh, God dealt with him in a lot of ways. Jacob was a very headstrong person. He was a very self-centered person. Uh, he was a very uh, wise or intelligent person who could get himself out of a fix pretty well. He's a very conniving person. And God had to bring him low. And in those 20 years, he, you know, he got deceived by his uncle Laban, and, uh, and then he, he got worn out with uh, taking uh, Laban's sheep and, and, and caring for them, and Laban would change the rules and make him stay awake all night because uh, if, if a beast or a thief got a sheep, then Jacob had to make up out of his own resources and so forth. And, and Jacob complains about that later on. At the end of that 20 years, he complains to Laban, you did this, you changed my wages 10 times. And actually... He's kind of at the end of his wits, but he's he's the kind of man who's got a lot of wits. He's got a lot of resources. And God, I believe, in the process of dealing with him, is trying to bring him to the end of himself so that he truly just trusts in God. Now, this is before he refers to God as the God of Israel, which he will do shortly after this. But uh, God has been wearing him down. God has been challenging him, showing that he can't. Uh, you know, he can't overcome every kind of uh, difficulty on his own, in his own strength. And I think the final lesson of that was uh, that night. And Jacob had just heard that Esau, who 20 years earlier had said he's going to kill him, he was coming to meet him, and Esau had 400 armed men with him. Now, if it's just a, you know, a brotherly reunion, I don't know why Esau would bring 400 armed men with him. You know, it was definitely a threat. It seemed like to Jacob. And so Jacob is and he's already kind of worn down by all, all these things that happened to him. And now he's facing the next morning the possibility that G, uh, Esau might come and kill him and his children and his wives and take his stuff and so forth. And he's just under a lot of stress. And then God shows up in the form of a human character and wrestles with him. Now, there's some people, a lot of commentators think this was a dream he had, uh, but it did leave him physically crippled afterwards. So I don't think it was just a dream. I think God kind of came in a physical form and they wrestle all night. Now, God obviously mitigated his own strength because he could, God can, you know, pin a person anytime he wants to, but he, he let Jacob wrestle with him all night long to get him even more exhausted. And he was exhausted. And at the end of that wrestling, Jacob said, I, I you know, I can't defeat you, but I'm not going to let you go uh, until you bless me. Now, the man then said, okay, your name's going to be not Jacob, but Israel which means one who wrestles with God. Uh, and so 
you know, Jacob is actually crippled for life, apparently, in that uh, activity. And it weakens him to a point where he is now totally helpless. And I think it's the whole story of Jacob is a series of things where God is making him more and more uh, helpless, more and more unable to uh, you know, solve all his own problems without God. And, and this is like the final blow to make him here. He's a, he's, now he's going to be crippled. He's now going to be defeated. And uh, he's just going to have to trust God, which is what God tries to bring many of us to. Now, I don't know why it had to be in the form of a wrestling match. Uh, we're not told why that would be the way, but we can see that that's all part of the whole process. It could have been completed some other way, but this is how God did it, uh, to bring him to the end of himself so that he was now returning to the promised land uh, a changed man. Uh, hopefully, that's the idea. He's he's not going to deceive himself into thinking that he can handle things for himself. He's now a weak old man who has been uh, you know, humbled and, and so forth. And that's, you know, God had to do that kind of thing to say with Moses also. Moses was a strong character, a powerful person in Egypt. And then because he had to flee from Pharaoh and he had to, you know, live in exile and he had to shepherd sheep and so forth, he became humbled. And then God appeared to him and said, now I'm sending you to Pharaoh. Uh, there are times when you know, God just deals with people in the Old Testament, I'm sure, and, and in the New as well, who have a lot of self-confidence. And he says, well, I can really use you, but not, not while you've got that self-confidence. I've got to knock that wind out of your sails. I've got to get you to a place where you're broken and uh, contrite, and you know that you need me. And I think that's what that wrestling match was about. Okay, uh, much appreciated. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Earl. Good talking to you. Uh, let's see, Viva from Honolulu, Hawaii. Welcome to the Narrow Path. Hello. Hi, Steve. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Thanks for calling. Uh, yeah. Um, first of all, I want to say I really appreciate your show, and I really learned a lot of things from this. And my question is, because my mom, she's like my um, faith pillar, and in 2020, she got moved to this group. Uh, it's called Ophirian Heritage Conservatory. I don't know if you've heard about that. No, I haven't. But Yeah, so they have a YouTube page. Right now, she's completely a different person. And, like, trying to tell me that Jesus is actually the mark of the beast. But Jesus and is? Is the mark of the beast, that Jesus is Satan. That's how she is now. And I'm, like, really concerned because, yeah, it's very different in how she dressed now. But they still believe the Bible, the Old Testament. Yeah. And sometimes she tried to share me stuff, but I don't want to look at those stuff. But yeah. anyway, it started from the, I don't know if you heard about the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. Yeah, the serpent Theory or theology. That that Eve that, had a child by uh, by Satan. Cain and yeah, and it was Cain, Cain yeah. and and that all the Gentiles came from that line. Oh, oh that's and interesting how because Gentiles. that that Satan seed doctrine actually started out a little different than that. But I, I see they've adopted it the opposite. Uh, lots of the uh, you know like Aryan nations type people uh who who believe the uh, serpent seed they're they're anti-semitic and they say the jews are the serpent seed descended from cain and now this group's saying just the afternoon the gentiles are the truth is that uh, there's no human beings on the planet uh 
uh, and never have been, who were descended from Satan himself. Eve never had relations with Satan. Uh, Cain was Adam's son, not Satan's son. Now, people, I think the reason they get a different idea is because it says in James, excuse me, in First John chapter 3, it says that uh, we can tell the children of God from the children of Satan uh, because the children of God do righteousness and love each other, and, and the children of Satan don't. And then it says that Cain was of that wicked one and slew his brother. So it mentions Cain as being one of the children of Satan. But people who think, if they think that means he was biologically fathered by Satan, well, then all of us who are children of God, it, it would by implication, mean we were all biologically fathered by God, in, in essence, like Jesus was. Now, to say someone is a child of Satan in the New Testament, or a child of God, unless we're talking about Jesus himself, we're talking about someone who's spiritually of the nature of Satan or of God. Uh, it's a spiritual affinity. It's not talking about their uh, genealogy. It's not talking about their ancestry. Uh, mm -hmm. Cain was not physically a child of Satan, he, he, but he chose the way of Satan, and spiritually he was aligned with Satan in that sense, in the sense that the Bible is using that term. And Jesus did say about the Jews, too. I mean, the, not all the Jews, certainly his disciples, just didn't apply to them, but to the Jews who were opposed to him. In John 8, 44, he said, you're of your father, the devil. But not literally. Now, this group just, you know, if they say that Jesus is the mark of the beast uh, and he's say, Satan and so forth, just realize that in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, four, uh, 12, uh, it's talking in the opening verses about how to know a false spirit from a true spirit. So every spirit that says that Jesus is cursed is not of God. So anyone who says Jesus is evil or the mark of the beast, that's just, that's not the Spirit of God. That's not the Spirit of God saying that. So uh, they're just, uh, that's just a deception. And so I just go with what the Bible says because it doesn't say that. I need to take a break, I'm sorry to say. You're listening to The Narrow Path. We are listener supported. You can go to our website to find our resources that are free or donate if you want to. It's thenarrowpath.com. I'll be back in 30 seconds. We have another half hour. Don't go away. Tell your family, tell your friends, tell everyone you know about the Bible radio show that has nothing to sell you but everything to give you. And that's The Narrow Path with Steve Gregg. When today's radio show is over, go to your social media and send a link to thenarrowpath.com where everyone can find free topical audio teachings, blog articles, verse-by-verse -verse teachings, and archives of all The Narrow Path radio shows. And tell them to listen live right here on the radio. Thank you for sharing listener-supported The Narrow Path with Steve Gregg. Welcome back to the Narrow Path Radio Broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg, and we're live for another half hour taking your calls. I would give out the phone number, but our lines are full. And, uh, you know, if, we, if they start to empty out, I'll give you the phone number, but I don't want to have you frustrated uh, trying to call and getting the line busy and so forth. I do want to mention this before we go on for the following half hour, which uh, will fill out our week here on the air. Uh, tonight, I'm in the Sacramento area, and I'm speaking in Roseville, as I did last night, and uh, I'm speaking at the West Side Church in Roseville, and I was asked to speak on the subject of sexual purity. Now, last night they had me speaking about uh, God honoring relationships uh, in general, 
and we didn't talk about sexual relationships there, but they want me to speak on the subject of sexual purity. And obviously, that's a very uh, important aspect, especially of how Christianity differs from our present culture. When I was growing up 50 years ago, our culture didn't differ as much from Christianity on their ideas about sex. Uh, but just in the past half a century, uh, there's been radical change. And uh, anyone who's been raised in those years since then uh, would definitely need to have reaffirmed what the Bible actually tells us about the sexuality and sexual purity and so forth. I'll be speaking about that tonight um, at 6.30 tonight. Uh, so you, if you want to go there, you can uh, go to our website, thenarrowpath.com, and um, check under the tab that says announcements and and the location is there and by the way i believe i'll be streaming it on facebook to my personal facebook page if you went last night to see last night's uh, stream and you went to um, the narrow path facebook page that's not where it is it's actually at my personal um, steve greg uh, facebook page it'll probably be streamed tonight if um, you know if if the technology works which it usually does Okay, we're going to go to the phones now and talk uh, to Rez in the Bay Area, the San Francisco Bay Area. Hi, Rez. Welcome. Hey, Steve. Uh, time for two quick questions or only one? If it's only one, I'll just ask one. I, I don't want to take up a lot of your time. Well, that depends on the questions. Go for it. <laughs> okay. I wanted to ask you about the, the DDK, uh, what your opinion and thoughts of it were. And then the other thing was, is you had mentioned um, Jacob and how he's a little bit headstrong. And I want to ask your opinion about some, something that occurs with me at times is when I when I start getting very confident in God and I have this 100% faith in him, I lose a lot of fear in, in life. And with that, I, I become confident. I become confident in my abilities through him. And I start really uh, doing well in life. But in that process, I feel at times, because I don't have that weakness anymore, that I don't feel as close to him in in a way. So I struggle with that at times. And I wondered if you ever dealt with that, if you know what I'm kind of talking about. Well, I'll tell you, um, there is a difference between being self-confident and having your confidence in God. But it, both ways feel confident. In other words, uh, if I'm going to speak someplace and they want me to speak on something I've spoken on before and I, it's a subject I know pretty well, uh, of course, I, I realize that even if I didn't know God, I might be able to pull it off. I mean, if there, I, I, I just might have the ability from knowing the subject to be able to talk about it adequately. But uh, my consideration is that whatever I may be able to do naturally doesn't have any impact spiritually. Uh, I need God. I need the anointing of the Holy Spirit. I need his uh, speaking through me if there's going to be any kind of spiritual benefit conveyed to the listeners. So, uh, but I have that confidence, too, because I'm, that's, that's a habit I've, I've actually formed from when I was young is when I speak, I'm in fear and trembling. Not that I won't be able to speak, but that my speaking might be unfruitful, spiritually speaking, unless God shows up. So I'm never afraid to speak to a group. But I'm always mindful of the fact that if God doesn't enable it, if God doesn't own it, if God doesn't anoint it, well, those who come to the group are going to go away un unchanged, un un unhelped, spiritually speaking. So 
you know, confidence, I guess you have to ask yourself, you know, am I confident because I just think I'm, I'm all that? Or am I confident because I just know that I'm not really all that? I, there's very little I can do. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. Uh, and, and in the sense of accomplishing anything for God, uh, there's nothing that in my natural talents or your natural talents can be done. Uh, we need to ask God to fill us with his spirit. And, to, and then we have to be confident in him, confident in him that he's, he's trustworthy. And then we move forward. So that would be, I guess, my first response to what you said about that. Now, as far as the Didache is concerned, that's a book that was written in the generation after the Apostles. The whole name of the book is, now the word Didache is Greek, it means teaching. But the whole name of the book is longer. It's called The Teaching of the Twelve Apostles. But the Apostles didn't write it, and it's not claiming that they did. It's What it's suggesting is that the, the church, uh, the generation after the Apostles died, put together what they referred to as the Teaching of the Twelve Apostles which is probably accurate. It probably they, it's a very early book. Uh, it's one of the earliest books we have, other than the Bible itself, of, from the Christian era. And there were even Christians in the second century that wanted to see that put into the New Testament. It didn't make the final cut because it wasn't written by apostles, but, but that didn't change the fact that the church had high respect for it. And what the Didache is, it's basically a manual of Christian practice of the early church. It gives instructions about the Lord's Supper, about baptism, about uh, how to uh, welcome visiting prophets that come uh, and speak at the church and, and how to recognize that they're false prophets. It's, uh, it's, it's a good book. I mean, it's not Bible. It's not inspired as far as I know. Um, you know, those who made the final decision to not include it in the uh, New Testament were not by that decision, deciding that it was of no value or that it wasn't a good book to read. It's just that there's a difference between a, a book being a good book and a reliable book, on the one hand, and being an inspired book, you know, in the Word of God, on, on the other hand. So it's not on the level with New Testament books, but it is a very authentic representation of at least what the early church taught and what they believed the apostles had taught. And it was written early enough that the people who wrote it probably heard it from the apostles. So uh, it's kind of a digest of, uh, you know, order in the church and so forth, uh, written by the generation after the apostles and representing it as, as their teaching, as the teaching of the 12 apostles on these subjects. All right. Uh, let's see. We're going to talk next to Oscar from Pittsburgh, California. Hi, Oscar. Welcome. Good afternoon, uh, my question is concerning the what's going on right now in Israel, because you know, like, like the, in this moment, you know, a lot of young Christians that you know just came to the faith, they have they have a problem to believe that why as Christians we still support it, knowing that what they do and it's wrong too, you know, killing a lot of innocent people. I know in the Old Testament it was saying that. You know, whoever bless you will be blessed. But that's still applying to this time. I remember that I questioned you. I I did question once concerning that. Uh, you know, you told me that uh, Israel became a secular country too. So we know that as Christians there, but how we know if this government that is in control of Israel right now 
is 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 is, is prison because they, they there's a lot of Jewish people that doesn't believe in Christ yet. They still waiting for the Messiah. So right. I'm so your, your specific question, your, your specific question the, is, yeah, how we can talk to uh, uh, somebody that is saying, no, why do you as a Christians uh, are still supporting these? You know, because the media right now is like going both ways. We should okay. not be supporting. Uh, well, that's, uh, that's just uh, it. The, the media does. The media does have stories from both sides, pro-Palestinian and pro-Israeli, and uh, you know, honestly. I've, and I always say this: I'm not there. I don't. I'm not in communication with anyone who's there. I don't know when I hear a story on the internet or uh, or or on the news. I don't know if it's entirely true or if there are facts about it that I'm not being told. Uh, I just don't know. And and that's true no matter which side it comes from. If it's a pro-Israeli or if it's a pro-Palestinian story, I'm just not there. I know there's a sharply divided opinions about loyalty to one of the other groups. Now, as a Christian, I believe that when you become a follower of Christ, your loyalty is totally to Christ. If it's not, you're not really converted yet. And it means other loyalties then take a back seat. For example, your loyalty even to your family. Jesus said, who are my mother and my brothers? Those who do the will of my Father in heaven, they're my mother and brothers. Uh, so, I mean, even loyalty to your family is secondary. Of course, loyalty even to your own country is secondary. But when you get beyond that, loyalties to any other countries outside, those are more or less artificial. Now, of course, there was a time when Israel, the nation Israel in the Old Testament, was the covenant people of Yahweh. They were God's people, and they were living in a covenant with him. They often were disobedient to the covenant, but they still had it. It was the basis of their existence, was that God made a covenant with them, and they were the only covenant nation in the world. And, frankly, it was essential that if someone wanted to be right with God, you, you take Israel's side uh, because they were his people. At least you officially take their side as a nation. Now, there isn't a, a nation on the earth like that today. Uh, there is no nation on the planet that is uh, formed by a covenant with God. The nation of Israel today, as I mentioned in a previous conversation apparently with you, I don't remember, but it, it's a secular nation. And if you don't believe that, go and ask them, you know. The Knesset, who rules Israel, they are secular. Now, some of them are believing Jews, and many are not. But if you go over to Israel and randomly speak to 10 Israelis in Israel and ask what their religious views, if it's a, if it's a you know, let's just say 100, 100 Israelis about their views, if it's a true sample, uh, generally speaking, one of them will say he's a Christian. About 20 of them will say they're Jewish observant, and the other 75% or more are going to say they're secular. At least 20% will say they're atheists. This is not a, a religious country. This is not a country that was founded by religious people. It's a political country. Now, we could say, but it's fulfilling prophecy. Well, maybe it is. I'm not sure which prophecy, because the Bible did say that if Israel would turn back to God, he'd bring them back to their land. He said that in the Old Testament, and they did that. When they're in Babylon, they, the ones who turned back to God, he did bring them back to their land. But there's nowhere in the Bible that says he's going to bring anyone to their land and have them be his people if they're against him, if they're atheists, if they're anti-Christ, that is against the Messiah. And therefore, Israel, as much as we see uh, similarities in, in some ways between the nation that's there now called Israel and the nation in the, old, in the Bible that was called Israel, 
it's 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 only a, uh, a surface similarity. It's the same race of people. It's the same geographical location. Uh, but apart from that, they're not the same because the, the modern nation of Israel was not founded on any covenant with God. Those who rule it don't see any covenant with God as, as the basis of their existence. Uh, the United Nations, which is really the, the ones who made them a nation in 1948, they didn't see it as a covenant they had with God. They just saw it as a solution to the Jewish problem. And uh, they thought it would be best if they had their own land. And I'm not saying it isn't best. Uh, you know, I'm not saying Israel shouldn't have their own land. I'm just saying that what's there is not analogous to what was there before the time of Christ in the Old Testament. Because it, before the Old Testament, or in Old Testament times, the nation of Israel was a political nation. It was not a secular nation. It was a religious nation. Yeah, they sometimes went astray, but they still were founded upon the Jewish religion. Their central activity was temple worship and animal sacrifice. They had a priesthood. Uh, you know, they don't have that now. This is just another democratic modern nation, which has the same name as the old nation in the Bible did. But it doesn't have the same founding. It doesn't have the same basis. Um, so, so how do we judge Israel? Well, I think we should judge Israel the same way we would judge America or any other nation. Uh, the same way we would judge the Palestinians. If they do things that are justifiable, we, we support those actions. If they do things that are not justifiable, we don't support those actions. But as with most countries, Israel and America and Palestine and, and other groups, most nations, in fact, all of them, I think, they do some things we can support, and they do some things we can't support. So instead of saying, I'm pro-Palestine or I'm pro-Israel, or even I'm pro-America, I have to say, I'm pro-God, I'm, I'm, I'm pro-Jesus, I'm pro the will of God, justice. And so any nation that does justice, I, I support that. Any nation that does, does injustice, well, I have to not support that injustice. And I don't know of any nation that always does justice, and I don't know that only does injustice. So I don't take a political stand on this at all. It, now, if God is fulfilling prophecy over there, I'm not sure which prophecies they are, but, but if it's true, God can do that. He can do that without my knowing much about it. I'm not involved in it at all. What I've been given to do and what you've been given to do is to preach the gospel to all nations, to make disciples of all nations to promote the kingdom of God, which is Christ's movement. Um, I, you know, yeah, we have opinions about things that happen politically. Uh, geopolitics, we, we get concerned about some things that are going on in some places, and we have to say, oh, that's a bad thing. And we, we have to do that with almost every nation once in a while. have to do it with Israel, with Palestine, with America, with every country. But, uh, but those are not our countries. Uh, our country, our citizenship is in heaven. And we are ambassadors of heaven on this planet. And we're not here to support one country or another. We're here to promote the kingdom of God. And as such, it means we do have opinions. We hopefully share God's opinions about what nations do. And uh, if you want my opinion about Israel and, and Palestine right now, I don't know enough about it. Like I said, I'm not there. I'll, I, on the Internet, I get a lot of uh, pro-Palestine uh, people sending me stuff about bad things they say Israel's doing, and I got pro-Israel people sending me information about bad things Palestinians are doing, and I don't know, you know, maybe they're all right. Maybe maybe everyone's doing bad stuff. 
But it's not the role of the Christian church to say, well, I have to put my stamp of approval on this country or that country because our total loyalty has been sworn away to Jesus. And uh, our thoughts about everything else have got to be taken case by case. As, are they righteous or are they not righteous? So I'm just not really involved in that controversy. Um, if God is, he can do that without me. Because, again, he hasn't put me over there. I'm not there. I can't, be, I, I can't shoot anybody, uh, Israeli or Palestinian. I'm not, I'm not going to change anything there. Uh, but I am told to change things wherever I am. And where I am is here. And uh, I'm supposed to be making disciples. And I think every Christian is supposed to. So this, uh, to get caught up in the political, to me, getting caught up in that is not much different than getting caught up in the Ukraine-Russia battle. You know, I mean, we, we realize both sides do some bad things. Um, but, uh, and, and, we be, and we bemoan the bad things that happen. But uh, as Christians, we're not saying, okay, I'm, I'm pro-Russia, I'm pro-Ukraine. We have to realize, well, both of them are non-Christian nations. Same is true of the Palestinians and the Israel. They're both non-Christian nations. They're, we're talking about secular nations here. We're not talking about God's people. And if we are talking about God's people, and according to Scripture, Jesus' people are God's people. And it happens that there's about, I think there's like uh, something like six times as many Christians per capita among the Palestinians as there are among the Israeli Jews. So, I mean, but that doesn't make the Palestinian movement Christian, but it just happens to have more Christians in it than the, than the Israel movement does. But again, we don't, we don't judge by nation. We judge by individual actions. And if we do otherwise, then it blinds us to justice in many cases and to injustice. So those are my musings on, on that subject. Thanks for calling. Let's talk to um, Sarah from Oroville, California. Welcome to The Narrow Path. Uh, hi, Steve. Uh, I just want to say that I'm going to hang up after I ask the question so I can listen to you on the radio. But um, okay. I was at uh, Westside Church last night. I was sitting in the back with my friend who was in the wheelchair, and I just want to say what a huge blessing it was to be able to hear you in person. I just want to thank you personally for that. Oh, um, I remember you sitting back there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I I always say I'm a recovering Seventh-day Adventist <laughs> because – both sides of my family, my husband's family and my side of the family are Adventists, but we go to a community church. Uh-huh. Um, we have frequent discussions about women in leadership, and recently they have a head pastor who is a woman. And just from reading some scripture in Titus and Timothy, it seems to me that women, or and I could be wrong, but they shouldn't be leading the head pastor uh, leading men in the church, and I didn't know if that was um, just short-sightedness on my side or if that was true. You touched no, on it a little bit last night. True. That is true. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, you touched on it last night about us being all equal, and that's the verse they go to when they say they have a new woman head pastor. <laughs> so right, I'm going to yeah. hang up, and I'll let you answer my question. <laughs> okay. Yes, well, men and women are equal before God, but again, that doesn't mean they have the same function. Uh, I was saying last night, uh, I'm equal to everyone in the room there last night, and they're all equal to me, but we don't all do the same things. We have different callings. And, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a Bible teacher by vocation, so that's what I do. Other people aren't called to do that. So uh, to say that people are equal 
doesn't mean that God has the same work for each person. It's like saying my brain and my heart are equal in value. They're both indispensable. And I could not put a uh, evaluation on either my brain or my heart because I would die without either of them. I couldn't trade them. Uh, I, I couldn't get rid of them and, and be okay. My brain and my heart are equal organs in my body, but they're not interchangeable organs. My brain was made for a certain function, and my heart was made for a different function. And as long as they're doing that, they're fine. But because they're equal, that doesn't mean that if, you know, if I needed a heart transplant, and the doctor said, well, we've been waiting for a heart to be available, but there's not available. But there's this brain. We could put a brain in your chest uh, to pump your blood for you. I'd say, eh, I think I'll wait. Uh, you know, I, I die with a brain in my chest. It's not the brain's great uh, and the heart's great. They're both of equal value, but they're not interchangeable units. And that's true. Uh, God didn't make men and women to be interchangeable units. He built them biologically different. And I believe they're psychologically different, too. And uh, but they're equal. So God did not apparently assign women the role of being the principal leaders in the churches because Paul said that in 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verse 12 through 15. And, uh, but I think he's talking there about official uh, you know, pastoral work. I think he's talking in the context about the qualifications for elders, for example, which is the discussion in the verses immediately following in chapter 3. So, and he says an elder which in those days was what a pastor was. The elders were the pastors. He said the elders should be the, the uh, husband of one wife. He says, I don't let women do that. Now, if Paul didn't, I guess I wouldn't. I mean, in other words, if I'm setting up a church, and I'm not, and someone says, well, should we have a women in, in pastoral ministry? I say, well, Paul wouldn't, so I don't think I would. And that's, that's where it stands. But that, does, that leaves open dozens or scores of different kinds of ministries that women can be in. You see, I'm not a pastor either, but I'm in full-time ministry. There's lots of ministries people can be in without being pastors. In fact, being a pastor is not, not one of the more desirable ministries as far as I'm concerned. It's got a lot more responsibility and a lot more headaches than a lot of other kind of ministries do. Um, I, I'm actually thankful that I don't have to pastor a congregation. I'm not, I don't think I'm well uh, suited for it. And, uh, but some people are, thank God. But the point is, it's not whether someone thinks they're well suited or not. If God is specific, yeah, I don't want, uh, let's just say, I don't want a man to be the pastor if his family's not in order. Well, I've got family members that aren't serving God, so I, I guess I, I'm, I guess I'm ruled out. Uh, or if he says I don't want women in that role, well, if I was a woman, I say, well, I guess I'm ruled out of that. Which only means I'll look elsewhere for my sphere of service. God wants me to serve Him, and there's lots of ways to serve God. You don't have to be a pastor of a church to do it. So uh, God doesn't have anything against women, but he does have certain functions for women. Uh, his, his primary function. Uh, now, can, does he ever violate that function? I, I do believe when the, when the need arises, he, he does. I mean, look at the book of Judges. Of course, Deborah was a judge. Uh, out of 12 judges, she was the only one who was a woman. And she was judge, it looks like, because a man named Jephthah, uh, I'm sorry, Barak, excuse me, a man named Barak, uh, was unwilling to do the job. And so she stepped in and filled in the emergency. And I think that's, you know, I don't think God's a legalist. I, I don't think God's saying, well, you know, I would never allow a woman to lead in any situation, even if there's no man available. Um, that's not the attitude that I believe God has. I think God has an attitude that I've set things up to be uh, ideally. This is how I want things to be. And as a Christian, I want things to be ideally as God wants them to be, too. 
But if I go to a church and they have a woman pastor, I don't sit in criticism of her. I'll listen to her and I hope to hopefully get something out of the sermon. But uh, but I probably won't join that church because, uh, honestly, I'm, if they have a woman pastor, it doesn't mean they're bad people, but it means they're definitely taking a different approach to the church's submission to Scripture than I would take. And so I'd look, I'd look for a more like-minded church than that. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I do believe that your observation is correct about that. Okay, we're going to talk next to Tyson from the Bay Area. We don't have much time, but Tyson, I'm sorry to say, uh, so we'll have to be quick. Go ahead. Um, yeah, I, I won't hold you up long. I just wanted to know who was Korah and what was her significance in the Bible? Korah was actually a man. Oh. Yeah, Korah was actually a man. He was a priest uh, or a Levite. I should say he wasn't a priest. He was a Levite. Uh, and he and some others with him rebelled against uh, Aaron, who was also a Levite. But Aaron's family had been chosen to be priests, and Korah's family had not. And Korah, uh, didn't, uh, he didn't abide by God's decision. It's a little bit like the idea of who does God choose to be a, a pastor, you know, uh, if God says it's going to be this kind of person, and I'm not that kind of person, I'm not going to rebel against it. I'll just go with what God says. And that was Korah's problem. He didn't go with what God said, and, and God judged him because he actually tried to cause a rebellion against God's choice of Aaron. And the earth opened up and swallowed Korah and the others that were with him. So that's why he's interesting in the Bible. Because, But, but his children survived, and some of them wrote psalms because some of his children were uh, psalms. Uh, you know, writers and musicians that wrote some of the songs that are written by the sons of Korah. Anyway, I'm out of time for today. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to The Narrow Path. We are listener-supported. If you'd like to write to us, the address is The Narrow Path, P.O. Box 1730, Temecula, California, 92593. Our website is thenarrowpath.com. You can find there at, under announcements where I'm speaking in the next few days. You can donate there if you want, or you can just take the stuff that's there. It's all free at thenarrowpath.com. Have a good weekend.